Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. It is the morning of April 15th, 2022. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by Simon Belanger. Simon, thanks for stepping in and uh, letting the people know uh, of, of my uh, missing one episode. Hey, you know what? We get one pass, all right? We get we get one, all right? Yeah, yeah. I'll probably uh, take you up on that in August at some point. Uh, I guess it's fine to announce it now. So my yeah. wife is pregnant, so I'll be a, a dad. The due date is mid-August. So we may have a Wewind episode at some point uh, in yeah. August. <laughs> Dude, yes, uh, I've known obviously for for a bit now, and so people know too. Mister Belanger will be a father, uh, so congratulations, dude! And Thank I know you. Uh, I know the people listening are we uh, very happy for you. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, as you know, we missed an episode. I caught that uh, that virus that people have been talking about for a couple of years. It finally got me. If I dude, I was starting to really think. I was immune or dodging it somehow, uh, but you know what? I, I got it. It's okay. I was fine. You know, my, I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. You know, people get it a lot worse than I did, but for a podcaster, my voice was just out of the question, and you can still hear it right now, but like, yeah. I'm talking, dude, what we, would we have recorded, what was that, Monday? There was no chance. There was no chance that was happening. But uh, we're here now on Friday morning. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's start off. So there was a lot of news this week, so it's going to be a little bit of earnings, but definitely a lot of news came out. First one, I'm sure all Canadians are aware that the Bank of Canada raised rates 50 basis points to 1%. Obviously, it's still relatively low compared to historical levels, uh, but Bank of Canada Governor Tiff McLean said that the reason they were raising rates was because inflation was too high. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I mean, I don't think that was a surprise to anyone. The concern is that they don't want inflation to persist for too long. McLean said that the longer inflation persists, then it becomes embedded in the inflation expectation of the general population and businesses, and that's something they want to avoid. They want to avoid that spiral of people having to pay more, expecting to pay more, demanding higher salaries, and then you get a spiral like that that essentially makes prices increase on an ongoing basis. He said that the main causes are international, so external to Canada. So he mentioned supply chain issues, higher commodity prices. Obviously, the war in Ukraine did not help things, but they are also starting to see demand outpace supply in Canada. And another goal with interest rate hikes is to hopefully balance those two out. So making sure that demand and supply are more in line, therefore, hopefully reducing inflation. Um, So I don't think it's the last interest rate hike that we'll see. I think most people are predicting that it'll probably get around 2% uh, by the end of the year, which I mean, I think it's, it's inevitable that it's going to that if we're going to going to continue seeing these inflation figures coming out. Um, what I'm interested in seeing is how it will impact the real estate market. Yes. Because I think a lot of people were buying homes because of FOMO, because they want a home, they want to build a family, they've it's been a dream of theirs. So really stretching out their budgets to be able to buy a home. And I know it's not a lot, 50 basis points, but I it does affect the purchasing power quite a bit. So if you ever use a mortgage calculator, play with the different percentages just to see how much your payments vary, even something as little as 50 basis points. Yeah, it makes a gigantic difference. Uh, and so <laughs> that's that's the thing that I think a lot of people are looking as you know a proxy for how this is going to affect this country in a major way is looking no further than the real estate market. Another thing I noticed here is you you mentioned three reasons of why he said the main causes uh, for inflation. I didn't notice, you know, printing money in any of those three uh, 
three reasons. What's that about? Yeah, I didn't I didn't listen to the full press conference, so it's possible he did mention it at some point, but I would They just think, dance around it. Yeah, That's exactly. What it is. The Fed is usually the same way in the US. They won't mention that overtly that, you know, just the increase in money supply, the massive <laughs> increase we've seen over the past couple of years has led to that. Um, you know, maybe in cl- behind closed door they do admit it, but I don't think they oh, want to project that. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious to me. All right. Uh, we talked last episode a lot about the richest man on the planet. Mr. Elon Musk, and this guy just loves, this guy loves it lately. He loves, he loves the press, I feel like, and uh, there's more to talk about here. What happened? Yeah, the whole Elon Musk and Twitter saga. I mean, I'll, I'll give it to Elon. I mean, he does give us a lot of news to talk about, so that's... Dude, a lot of people, like, I find him hilarious, honestly. Like, I'm not one of these, like, diehard fans, because there's, there's a lot of them, especially on Twitter. Uh, but he, 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 he makes me laugh, man. This guy's funny. Yeah. I, I take it a lot with a grain of salt too. Obviously, um, you know, I'll give a little bit my point of view regarding this whole thing as well. So the ob- people, I'm sure everyone has heard that news came out a couple of weeks ago that Elon had a 9.2% stake in Twitter. Then news came out that he would be joining the board of director then news came out that he would not be joining the board. <laughs> then news came out yesterday that he did a hostile takeover uh, bid, a hostile takeover bid of an all cash offer to buy Twitter at fifty four twenty a share, which would value Twitter around forty three billion. If approved, he would then bring Twitter private. Um, the, a lot of people were speculating that he used fifty four twenty because four twenty, yeah, uh, you know, four two zero. It's exactly what it is. Like, that's just who he is. Probably. Yeah, exactly. I saw it at first. I was like, is it for sure? But uh, yeah, I mean, that would be something that Elon would do. Um, The main thing we've been hearing from Elon recently about Twitter is that it was the de facto town hall on the Internet and that free speech is one of the pillars of democracy. He's been saying that quite a bit. Um, He's also been messing around with people on Twitter like he usually does. He's been doing polls about like how people would like to see Twitter change, improve. Even I think he tweeted, uh, what if uh, we change the name of Twitter and remove the W? (laughs) He's such a (laughs) troll, dude. Um, so Musk released this proposal and he said, amongst other things, that it was a generous price for Twitter, but he was using arbitrary price points to support his argument. Um, he said that if his offer was not accepted, he would need to reconsider his position as a shareholder. And the arbitrary price point is that, you know, Twitter is really in the low. It's been trading fairly low in the past couple of months compared to uh, the past year or two. So I think it's a bit, you know, misleading for for Elon to say that. But there's a lot of questions here with this move, at least on my end. Is this the right move for Twitter shareholders? So if you're a Twitter shareholder, does this make sense for you? Yes, it's a nice premium, like I said. But if we look at the recent price compared to the price in this last few years, it's, you know, it's not that great. Where will he get the money? From what I've read, Elon has about $3 billion in cash. So most of his wealth is actually paper wealth related to Tesla stock and also his equity in SpaceX. So will he get a loan? Uh, Will he sell Tesla shares or look for a partner? Um, And I think a lot of people are speculating here because Tesla has been on a uh, downward trend since the news came out because people are anticipating that if it does go through, he's going to have sell to sell shares from Tesla and therefore bringing the price down. And the last question for me, for those who like the move on free speech grounds, I mean, it's all nice and free speech is important, but are you really that confident that Musk will deliver on this? And if there's one thing that we've seen about Musk is that he can definitely change his mind very quickly. And one question comes up for me. Even if his intentions are good here, will his own self-interest take over free speech at some point in the future? 
Twitter IPO'd in 2013 and has, I'd be hard pressed to find a more disgusting looking stock chart performance than Twitter. Shares are up exactly 8% since 2013. It's done nothing. It's bounced around a bit, but it has done nothing. Before this announcement, if you held shares of Twitter since the IPO, you didn't pay you didn't pay any dividends, so you were down 21% before this news. And now okay, you know, you've made it a dollar since. I get it. In terms of someone coming in as like an activist investor, forget all the free speech stuff. I like whatever. I I, I don't have any particularly hot take there. What I do have a particularly hot take there is I am not surprised that an activist investor like a Carl Icahn type special situation doesn't want to come in there and say, what is going on on this clown car of an operation? One of the most important businesses in the world, one of the largest in terms of daily active users, the platform is crazy addictive and you can't make any damn money. How is that possible? The ad technology, not good. Targeting, useless. The staff, the engineering staff that they have that takes them to roll out some useless feature takes months. They're so lethargic. I'm pretty sure that me and my my CTO can roll out features than a 3,500-person engineering team at Twitter to roll out some button on the app. Like, it makes no sense. And so for that perspective, I I could see someone wanting to come in and write the ship in terms of the business because it's got to be worth more than, what is it, $38 billion in market cap before the bid um, in terms of like optionality and monetize. Like the average, the ARPU is god-awful. For a platform so important, so addictive, has this entrenched user base, the de facto uh, platform for information and news and this town hall, it's got to be worth more money. Yeah, I saw a take on Twitter that, uh, you know, you I bet you like the person was saying all big tech CEOs are probably like contacting their lawyers like, okay, if we make an offer on Twitter, like, does it? pass any antitrust regulation like where are we standing just like making sure that they cannot like make a slightly better offer and just take it because there's so much unlockable value um that could be taken from twitter if it's properly managed and imagine like the facebook ad tech people got their hands on all those users you know like think of how much value Zuckerberg, imagine how much value you would unlock. Like, and so there's clearly a problem there in terms of what's going on. And so I, I get it from an activist investor perspective. Like, how does this thing not make money? Like, I just, I, I know if you look at their statements, you know, they are producing, you know, a little bit of cash flow. But like, in terms of what it could be, it seems ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, because it has those network effects, right? Dual network effects, users are there. There's been countless other platforms that have been trying to dethrone Twitter. And the reason it doesn't work is because there's a lot of users. And if you go on another platform, at some point, you may like the platform. But if there's no one else there, you're going to go back to Twitter. The entrenched network effects are really, really good there. All right, let's switch gears to... Uh, BlackRock, the largest money manager on the planet, ticker BLK. They just reported their first quarter. Revenue was up 7% uh, compared to the same quarter last year. Earnings per share was up a nice 20%. They repurchased about half a billion worth of their stock. They have 3.15 trillion assets under management for their ETF products. Um, that is astounding, right? Like that has become such a big part of their business, about exactly one third. 
in terms of assets under management. Uh, their, their total AUM assets under management did dip slightly under $10 trillion. It passed $10 trillion in the fourth quarter of last year, but the market hasn't been great in Q1. But if you look at total net flows, things are good for the business in terms of like inflows. Now, of course, that AUM number goes down when the market has performed like it did in Q1. But $3.15 trillion assets under management for their ETFs. And a lot of people just, I feel like just people aren't familiar when you, a lot of people are more familiar with iShares, the brand iShares, than even BlackRock. So if you see iShares, you're familiar with it. Some of you may own iShares shares, those ETFs. Those are owned and managed by BlackRock. What an incredible business they have become, and uh, I think it—it's—I think it's screaming cheap here. Personally, I do. Yeah, it definitely looks like uh, it's had a decent pullback, so the valuation is definitely pretty pretty reasonable right now. Um, I think it's just—I'm not sure in terms of how to value it in terms of growth going forward, but I would assume that there's some good prospects. It probably won't be like out of this world growth, but steady growth. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to get like this explosive high tech growth, but um, one, it's a really, really high quality business. You know, structurally, asset management's a nice business, and uh, the growth of ETFs, I think, is going to continue. I don't see that. I don't see a world where that thing doesn't hit five trillion in terms of AUM on the ETF side in the next couple of years. Like, to be honest, I, I see that happening with a high degree of confidence. Yeah, probably. And now their dividend is actually approaching 3%. So for a company yeah. as good as BlackRock, um, yeah. I mean, you can just uh, collect that 3% dividend and a pretty reasonable valuation, uh, definitely attractive. Yeah, 3% yield on a company growing of high quality like that. For those income investors out there, that's, dude, that's a, that's a good one. That's one I would, uh, you know, like, it's one that I'm like, Throw that in my parents' portfolio ASAP. That's the way I look at that one. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, now moving on to some Canadian news. Shopify announced that it was looking to split, uh, well, to do a stock split 10 for 1. They announced uh, earlier this week, in addition to the split, uh, CEO Toby Lutke, um, the um, would get a special founder share that will preserve his voting power as long as he's at the company. It would essentially give him 40% voting power in the company, even if his ownership stake in the company changes. The shares would not be transferable and will expire if Lutke is no longer an executive officer, uh, board member, or consultant whose primary job is with the company. So clearly, they're doing this to entice him in staying at the company and then definitely there's some consequences if he were to leave in terms of the uh, voting right it would expire if uh, himself his affiliates or immediate family no longer hold at least 30 percent of the total share count um, both of these announcements um, they were made at the same times will require shareholder approval um, you know, for me, it's just, uh, it's interesting, especially the thing about uh, the voting power for Lutkate, but uh, he's been a very good CEO and there's no reason to think that uh, he won't do a really good job going forward. So I think they're just trying to reward him and making sure that he continues being invested in Shopify. And in terms of the uh, share, um, the share split. It is what it is. I think we've talked about that in length before. It seems like every big tech company is doing a share split uh, recently. Normally, these types of corporate structure changes, I'm not a big fan of. Just in general, like restructuring the class. Most of them are pretty shareholder unfriendly. Now, Toby's been a stud, so... I'm I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Usually these like I look at these with pretty poor sentiment. And I I mean I could talk all day about how awesome Toby is as as an entrepreneur, founder, as a leader. But he did have a really bad take in the press the other day that I wanted to quickly discuss. Did you see the one where he wrote this 
pretty extensively long Twitter thread about how the stock price doesn't matter of his company. Did no, you see it? No, I didn't it? see that. No. So I don't even know if it's still up because he was getting roasted. Like he, he seems like the guy to just keep it up, but he wrote this exhaustive Twitter thread about how the share price of his company or the share price of a stock is completely irrelevant. And he was relating it to sports and like coming up with these analogies of why the stock price doesn't matter. First, I thought this is only coming up because your stock price is getting mashed. And so it's clearly top of mind for you. And two, not true. Your stock price definitely matters when you are a tech company that relies on attracting and retaining talent through share-based, stock-based compensation. And if your share price gets mashed, it matters to your employees a lot. It matters a lot to your employees. And I thought that this was a pretty out-of-touch take for someone like him to make, uh, given how much SBC, stock-based compensation, is important in total comps for their employees for a company like this. So sure, if if there was no SBC, sure, whatever, it it might not matter that much in the short term. But like, I don't know, this just felt like, I don't know, this gave me the the weird, a weird vibe. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. So it does definitely, you know, helps for stock-based compensation. It also allows a company like Shopify to not dilute as much. Right. Uh, so if they yes. do a secondary offering, obviously stock-based compensation will also dilute a little bit. But if they do decide... It affects to their a, cost of capital is what you're saying, right? Exactly. So if yeah. they do want to do a big initiative and they don't want to tap into the debt market, it gives them an extra option. Obviously, they can always do a secondary offering, but the higher your share price is, the least amount of shares you'll have to issue to reach that target funding. Uh, so share price does matter whether they would actually issue shares, do a secondary offering, who knows, but it, it is a good lever to have at your disposal if you do require it, especially if you're trying to invest in the business. Yeah. And like, like I said, I could, I could do a whole episode about all the great things that he, I think that this podcast does do a decent job of, of pumping his tires, but this was not a good take by Toby. Yeah. I'll have a look at it. Uh, yeah, have a look. On how you uh, you sum, summed it up. but uh, He does this analogy of sports, and I'm like, Toby, you're a nerd, dude. You're <laughs> a nerd. You don't know sports. All right, Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines reported an operating loss of $783 million. Uh, total operating loss of, does this right? $10.1 billion? Like, I just copied this from my analyst's, like, notes sometimes i'm like yo can you give me some notes on on delta i saw their reported earnings operating expense of 10.1 billion uh increased 679 million compared to the the march quarter of 2019 uh o- operating revenue of 8.2 billion uh for the march quarter of of this year which was 79 percent restored uh from the 2019 level so again this is one of those businesses that are still like kind of leaning on those 2019 comps, which is fair. I mean, that's fair. It's an airline. Um, traffic was down 20, 25% year over year, which I found weird. Um, and capacity slipped 17% in the quarter. So not, not great. Corporate flyers in March did improve 70% uh, versus 2019. So, okay, so it's 70% of what the 2019 level is. So that's kind of what we're seeing across the board between 70 and 80% of 2019. So that seems, you know, like a formidable recovery, right? But there was a lot to unpack in these results. And I'm no airline analyst, but I, I was doing my best here. And one thing that I thought was interesting is they kept commenting how basically January and February were like bleh, like kind of like soft. But oh baby, March, like, you know, like this month, they're like, they're highlighting like 
So the quarter, yeah, but let me tell you about the month of March. And even right now, because we're releasing those results in April, and they're like, even April, let me tell you about April. Uh, We're seeing the best demand in our company history. So Delta forecasts that revenue is going to climb back to between 93 and 97% of 2019 levels. So like, we'll call it a full recovery back to 2019 for this second quarter, which is pretty, that's pretty good. Uh, they returned to profitability in the month of March. Again, like they they keep cherry picking the month of March um, with an operating margin of, of almost 10%. I, I have a one last quick quote here from uh, the CEO, but any thoughts here on kind of like the demand and, and this return to travel? Well, first of all, I was checking. Uh, so yes, they had total operating expenses of ten point one billion. So that it just was seems correct. so high. Yeah, I mean, for for an airline as big as Delta, uh, not overly surprised. Air Canada has a lot of pretty high operating expenses going back just on memory. I don't think it's that high, but it's still very high. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's. Uh, I mean. It's they probably are looking at March because I know there's a lot of travel that's done with March break and so on. So they're probably looking at that as a as a good month and you know, hopefully for them it will increase. Uh but I think it's pretty encouraging overall in terms of results compared to the twenty nineteen levels. Um still not quite there yet. And I know I've seen anecdotes Totally, that uh, they are also airlines are also raising prices and demand seems to be still pretty strong. Uh, they're yeah. raising prices to uh, counteract those higher fuel prices. And I don't have the stat here. I wish they had it in their release. But as far as I know, U.S. domestic travel is like killing it. So in terms of returning back to 2019 levels, they really need that push from international. Um, which is still, you know, part of this recovery. But as far as I know, and based on like some quick math here, you know, accounting for international, U.S. domestic travel is on fire, like crushing it. And so, um, yeah, good for them. CEO Ed Bastian said, the demand, quote, the demand is phenomenal. We've never seen in our company's history demand for our product and services at this level. In March, here we go again. In March, we had the highest sales in terms of bookings in any month in our history. And is continuing into April. That's pretty interesting. Uh, so it's good to see a rebound, and I'm not surprised demand for air travels red hot right now. I'm just not surprised. In terms of capacity, the airline should have a much better time this year. And, uh, you know, I could see the next three quarters of this year being absolute madness for demand. It's interesting to see and look at air travel and, and looking at these these companies like Delta, like a public company, as like a proxy for the, the recovery. But as many of you know, it is nearly impossible Never say never, but nearly impossible to convince me to own any airline stock. This is just a historically pretty crummy business. Yeah, it's very lumpy. I mean, it's it's going to be up and down depending on economic cycles or obviously that would have been my argument prior to the pandemic. Now with the pandemic, I guess for uh, unforeseen black swan events, I would add to that. Uh, yeah. But I, I'm like you, it's just just... A lot of uncertainty there, costs. Um, the unit maybe- economics are just brutal. I want to own companies with good unit economics. I think that that's just a blanket statement. Yeah, exactly. And I mentioned fuel costs rising, and it's all nice and dandy if they can pass that on to the consumer. But at some point, if demand kind of slows down from the consumer side, you can't really hike prices all that much if demand is not there to counteract your higher fuel costs. So I think it's very tricky. We'll move on to our next piece of news. That one came out, what, about 10 days ago, approximately. Uh, so Berkshire revealed that it had a stake in HP, ticker HPQ. Um, last week, well, so news came out. I did these uh, these notes uh, last week. So <laughs> You're expecting about... to record it sooner until I was like, yeah, exactly. gave you the so news. That's it. So Berkshire, news came out that it had purchased $4.2 billion worth of HP stock. 
Um, this is a bit of a head scratcher for me, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, HP's business has been pretty flat since 2014 after years of decline. Uh, revenues have grown 11% since 2014, clearly not great. The revenue is still very predominantly for hardware. Um, the majority, 48%, is notebooks. Um, after that, you're looking at printing supplies and then desktop. So there are 40%, 20%, and 15% respectively, and then some smaller segments. Um, it just does not seem like a great business for me. Um, one of the bright spots here is that they do generate a lot of free cash flow. So I'm assuming Warren Buffett and Berkshire, that was something that they really zoned in on. They also have a pretty good balance sheet and they pay a 2.5% dividend and are trading at very cheap multiples. They had a P of around seven when I did the notes. So it's possible it, it changed a little bit. And they've also been buying back shares at a pretty rapid rate. They bought back 7.2 billion worth of shares in 2021 wow. and 4.1 billion in 2020. So it's clearly, I think, a value play here by Berkshire. But again, with Berkshire investing in Apple, Apple being such a great business, and then you're investing in HP, I just, I mean, I don't know. It's a value play. I don't think this is a wonderful business at a decent price. I think this is a okay business at a pretty good price. That's how yeah. I kind of see that. Um, and let's remember about HP, right? It had one of the worst acquisitions in history with the compact acquisition when we did that episode on the uh, the history of some of the largest uh, tech acquisitions. Yeah, I I think a lot of the same sentiment here. I I mean, they do like buying unsexy businesses, right? And HP, I mean. <laughs> Try to think of a less sexy technology company than HP. Like, what says cubicle in the 90s more than this stock, right? Like, I, I don't I don't know. But then I look at it, all-time high in April of 2022. All-time high for this thing. You know what it is? It's that share buybacks. I had no idea they were deleting the share count like that. This is a 39 and a half, call it 40 billion in market cap business. You just said they bought back 7.2 billion worth of shares in 2021, another 4 billion in 2020. I mean, they are, you know, they've retired most of the shares. So that seems core to Warren's thinking here. Or Warren yeah. and team. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's been one of the big reasons why he's bought Apple, right? They right. love that they were deleting the share count. But again, we're looking at completely different businesses. Apple is thriving. Um, they <laughs> yeah. have services segments, wearable that are growing very rapidly. They have such a strong brand where people are willing to pay very high prices for their products, really high margins. HP is just another you know, PC maker, in my opinion, that's, you know, that's a bulk of their business still. Yeah. I just think of like printers and you know, like it's, they could be, you know, evolved and I just wouldn't know, but that's, that's all right. Uh, let's talk about a company that smashed results. TSMC. How's, I got to check here. Has the stock reacted on this? Because um, as you know, this is just kind of like an unloved geography. Wow, not even popping on these results. Still 30% off the high in January. Um, wow, okay. Um, this is just for my own knowledge here. But they reported $17.5 billion for the quarter, an increase of 36%. Uh, diluted EPS increased 45%. Wow. And free cash flow of $3.8 billion. You know, this is one of the most important companies on the planet, being the foundry for basically all semiconductors. Like, it's kind of crazy, uh, this, like, monopolistic way that they work. Now, they reported their segments, but I thought were interesting to highlight here. 
High-performing computing and automotive segments both grew at 26% year-over-year. Every single division on terms of like growth by platform on a quarter-over-quarter basis grew, you know, some high single digits, but then HPC, high-performing computing, and automotive were big standouts. Now, automotive, I mean, it seems like a, a cycle thing and like supply chain thing, but wow, like the top line at 36% feels really good. Um, and so this company continues to get it done. Seems pretty unloved given its geography and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. It looks like a very good uh, quarter for them. It's kind of crazy the amount of cash flow that they're generating just in uh, just in a couple of quarters, though. Uh, just in one quarter, close to $4 billion. I did yeah. not know they generated that much. And possibly, I'm just going to limb here in the share price. I wouldn't be surprised if it's mostly people trying to price in the fact that the U.S. Had made, has made it a point to invest in some... Uh, foundry capacity. Exactly. Some foundry yeah. uh, capacity within the U.S. And maybe they're kind of looking outwards in the future and thinking this will impact adversely Taiwan semiconductors. Yeah. I I get that sentiment. I don't I don't maybe I'm not this is for people way smarter than me. Yeah. No, the the US is obviously very keen on making Intel great again. <laughs> like in terms of investing in local capacity. And I think that that's a really good idea for that country in general. That's my only thought there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. No, I was just kind of speculating on what maybe has caused it uh, because they, they're definitely seeing some pretty strong tailwinds right now. Now, moving on to some more news. Uh, for those of you who are into Bitcoin, you uh, I'm sure you're aware that there was recently the 2022 Bitcoin conference and uh, Peter Thiel made some pretty um, bold comments about Buffett uh, calling him a sociopathic grandpa. Simon, should we back up for a second? Most people here will know who Peter Thiel is, but if if you don't know who Peter Thiel is, should we give a little primer? Yeah, sure. I mean, one the first thing that comes to mind for me for Peter Thiel, so he's a tech investor, but uh, he co-founded PayPal with Elon Musk. So that is the first and thing. Palantir. For, and Palantir. And uh, Palantir. But yeah. for me, it's always like the, the PayPal thing that PayPal, comes to mind. Yes. He's, but, he, uh, he's like the king of the PayPal mafia of just like that. Yeah. band of billionaires exactly but he's done like he's a tech investor so he's invested in tons of other tech companies first investor in facebook yeah there you go you know more about him than i do right <laughs> <laughs> he turned a roth ira into I, I like five that. billion dollars so a roth yeah. ira for those listening is like very similar to a tfsa with, yeah with more restrictions uh but yeah, yeah. very similar yeah but like has uh, contribution limits and stuff like that. So like the fact that he's able to turn it into five billion is just like ridiculous, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I can I think I remember reading that they like were looking at changing the rules of it to avoid this kind of the stuff. Peter the Peter Thiel future. rule. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Thiel rule. Anyway, so to go back, so uh, Peter Thiel is obviously very bullish on Bitcoin, and he had a keynote speech during the 2022 Bitcoin conference, and he went on a bit of a rant about Warren Buffett and a few other well-known figures in the investing world that have been very critical about Bitcoin. He called Warren Buffett, like I mentioned, a sociopathic grandpa with a slide of Buffett when he said that it was like rat poison and you would he would never own any. Um, sorry, it, it scrolled it. Uh, my notes kind of went, uh, <laughs> I'm messing with the document here. My bad. It's all good. And Teal also ca called out Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan and Larry Fink from BlackRock. He then called out ESG, said that the difference between ESG and the CPP, um, the Chinese communist party, he said that there is no really difference between the two in his view. So bit bold here clearly everyone knows <laughs> that i have pretty strong conviction in bitcoin but honestly when i hear speeches like this um like the speech from peter i'm not a big fan i think it's the type of behavior 
to me, that's my own opinion, that does not sit well with a lot of people who are Bitcoin curious. Um, you know, people have not invested, but they're thinking of put, maybe putting 1% of their assets in it. They're still doing the research or still learning about it. Those type of speeches give an impression that if you're not in favor of Bitcoin, that you're against it and right. there's no other way around, right? And it's very adversarial. And I get there's a, still a lot of, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt being thrown out there that oftentimes doesn't really, for the most part, there's a lot of counter arguments that, you know, point those out as not being very valid. And, you know, I get it that they want to address those and Peter wants to address those, but I think you want to make Bitcoin, you know, more inclusive and have a less, uh, more of a inclusive tone than some than something like that just being adversarial and just thinking that a lot of people look up to Warren Buffett, right? And having that tone, I think, will just make a lot of people reluctant of investing in Bitcoin. That's just me, my view. I I don't know. It I do have a hard time with uh, th that type of discourse from Peter. Dude, this did not sit well with me like at all. I mean, what's the point of talking trash about Buffett like that was like this guy didn't just like slip up and just like call him a, a sociopathic grandpa he had slides and yeah, slides against mm -hmm. him like this was premeditated and it's just like why you know like why are you talking why are you getting up there and talking trash about one of the most successful and philanthropic is that the right word philanthropic people in the world, right? Like Buffett would have over $200 billion if he didn't give so much wealth away. Like no one talks about how even just last year, the year before, like $15 billion basically a year to of, of, of being charitable with his money. And that doesn't come out in the press. That doesn't come out in the headlines, right? Like and so I don't know. This just this just seems so silly. Like, yeah, yeah. don't get me wrong. I I like Peter Thiel. I like his book Zero to One is a great book. I like his lectures that he does with Y Combinator. If you're in the startup world, you've probably seen a lot of them. He's obviously smart, knows what he's doing. But it's just like I like what you said, right? It's like he's kind of saying, you know, it's us versus them, and it's like, what is what's going on, man? Yeah, and you know, Bitcoin, you know, I'm a big Bitcoin bull, everyone knows that, but there's a lot of great things about the technology. So why not, you know, focus on the positive and debunk those, uh, you know, that FUD that currently is being used. For example, a lot of people are talking about money laundering or, you know, not you know, Russia evading sanctions with cryptocurrency. Well, I mean, the U.S. actually looked at that and they said that there's no evidence that Russia is actually using cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin to evade sanctions. They're actually, you know, just stashing money with, you know, close relatives or business associates and actually evading sanctions that way. And it's just, I don't know, it doesn't sit too well. I actually like... Uh, during the Bitcoin conference, John Vallis that we had on the podcast in one of our early episodes, um, who actually, you know, he explained to us a bit more how Bitcoin worked. That was like two years, two years and a half ago. And he was one of the uh, uh, the person presenting Kathy Wood and Michael Saylor. They had a discussion. So he's the one who introduced them. And I thought his approach was way better where he just encouraged people to discuss Bitcoin with people in their life and trying to encourage them to learn more about it and answer their questions with an open mind. And I thought that was way more appropriate than what uh, the approach that Peter took, because like you said, it was planned. He had a slide with Warren Buffett's yeah. face. And I think <laughs> that words, if I remember correctly, like the rat poison reference that Buffett did. I thought um, the rat poison thing was a monger. Like the he, he Munger has been very famously quoted calling it rat poison squared. That's yeah, like I think what they, he, yeah, they may have they both used it. Yeah, maybe they Again, both used it. The guy's 99 years old, Buffett's 91, calling him a sociopathic grandpa is just like, dude, 
that's just like kind of disrespectful, man. Like I don't, I don't see the exactly. Point and like, who knows? Maybe I don't know why Warren Buffett doesn't want to learn more about it. But he's traditionally not wanted to learn that much about technology in general. So it could just be <laughs> and that still you done know? just all right. Yeah, exactly. He could have other motives that he doesn't want the status quo to change. You know, who knows? We're not in his mind. We don't know. But, you know, I think you have to just be careful a little bit and trying to interpret why people are doing something. All right. Last thing on the slate here and then let's wrap this up. Uh, Stripe. Stripe. Oh, boy. Stripe. Go public, please. Collectively, uh, the business. So, okay, let me rewind. Stripe processed a letter they they published this letter uh from the two brothers who founded the business and this was the first look at what the business is doing in terms of like total transaction volume to get a real scale of of what they've done so in their in their letter here they said collectively businesses on stripe Processed more than $640 billion in payments in 2021, up 60% year over year. So $640 billion transaction volume, up 60% year over year last year. Pretty significant. Now, for those who do not know Stripe, it is not a public company. It is a private company, so you cannot buy shares. But it is widely considered the most valuable private technology company in the world at about $100 billion on their last raise. I think it was like $99 billion in valuation on their last private venture capital raise. The letter writ- written by John and Patrick Collison, who, by the way, these guys are the best. Like They've gone on podcasts and stuff too, um, and so you can search that up. These dudes are great. Obviously, incredible entrepreneurs, pretty cool story, two brothers, you know, hacking their way through multiple entrepreneurial stints in their teens and then, you know, stumbling on Stripe, building, you know, one of the most important companies, especially important for the next couple decades. Some interesting stats from the letter, 1,400 new businesses starting using Stripe per day last year. More than 100 businesses every single day passed the milestone of 1 million in sales. Pretty cool. 60% of tech companies that IPO'd in 2021 use Stripe as their payment, uh, payment processor. Fun fact, Shopify still uses them. Startups are their core customer base, and many of them have become gigantic tech unicorns in terms of their customer success. This is why I find the company so interesting. The growth of their customers is directly related to Stripe success. I like these types of businesses where their customers and your success are aligned. This type of incentive alignment creates a really good feedback model. So by comparison of the two huge internet payments infrastructure, not including uh, PayPal, the most direct comp to Stripe is Adyen. And Adyen, I've seen them like get their name more out out there. They're a gigantic company in Europe, especially, but I've seen them get their name more and, and advertise here in Canada more recently, anecdotally. But I've noticed it. They're an Amsterdam-based company. Both so these are both gigantic European success stories. Adyen's 2021 GPV, so total volume, was 561 billion, up 70 percent year over year. Stripes again, six hundred and forty billion, up sixty percent year over year. So actually, reasonable comps, like they're pretty similar, and it makes me think with Adyen on the public markets at fifty-seven billion in market cap, down twenty-five percent year over year, um, seems relatively cheap. I didn't know Adyen was doing that much volume, um, and so yeah, I, I just. Final quote here from the Collison brothers. Um, Online spending was only 12% of total. And so there's still a long way yet to go, end quote. So pretty interesting. First time getting a look at this business. It's one I've been following. It's one I'm a customer of with my startup. Uh, Really clean product. And, you know, payments is such a good business. So... 
I think they'll go public one day. Yeah, I was going to say, have they uh, mentioned anything about actually going public or it's still kind of up in the air? I thought it was going to happen last year. Um, yeah, there has been whispers. And maybe this first public look into the business is kind of gearing up for that, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that the problem is, is that with these numbers coming out and Adyen being their most similar comp, it seems like they their valuation would actually decrease on a public market. So that's probably not what you want to do. That's fair. That's fair. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you guys very much. So, Simon, I like these Monday or uh, not Monday. I like these morning recordings. It's yeah, we Friday. can. We can probably do that uh, on Monday for next uh, Thursday's recording because I'm off. It's uh, Easter Monday. Oh yeah, and you get the Monday too, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. I took it as vacation, but oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I'm off say, regardless. Yeah. I know some people get the Monday and the Friday. Where it's yeah, like, yeah. Okay, but you took it off because the Friday is the today's the real holiday, right? Yeah, today. Uh, so Ontario is the Friday, and then Quebec has the Monday off. Oh, so I didn't yeah. know it was different. Okay. Yeah, it is. So it's funny because everything's closed on the Ontario side today in Ottawa. And then if you want to shop, you can just go on the Quebec side and then vice versa Monday. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, you learn something every day. Thanks so much for listening. Um, check out the website, thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com. Check out Stratosphere. Uh, really appreciate you check it out. Like The features we're dropping right now, really solid. It is the best place to find financial data. It's literally, it's becoming a freaking terminal um, in terms of, of quality and research. So check that out. That is stratosphereinvesting.com. If you can't remember that URL, can't spell it. I get it. Shouldn't have picked such a hard company to spell. Go to getstockmarket.com. That is getstockmarket.com. It'll redirect you there. Thanks very much. And if you haven't given us a rating, we haven't asked in a while. Give us a rating on your podcast player. If you're on Spotify, you can throw in five stars. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a little review there. I have yet to be, I've yet to be convinced there's another better method of growing a show organically than getting reviews. So it helps get the show out there, especially on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Uh, give us five stars. Really appreciate it. Take care. We'll see you in a few days. Peace. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.